James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small part, spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are present among us uh, through your spirit, that you are good to dwell where we find ourselves gathered and centered around uh, your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that that's what brings us here, that that's what holds us together, that the waters of baptism are thicker than blood, and that as we come and we gather together to proclaim your word and to receive and to be restoried and recentered around what it is that our lives are meant to uh, be about, that you come and you meet us here and you hold us together as your family, as your family of faith, your household of faith. We are here and we are gathered to be one people that declares the glories and the wonders of your kingdom and of your gospel. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, this morning you would change us, that you would shape us and form us into the likeness of you, and that we would continue to be able to bear that image as individuals and collectively as your people. We honor you, we praise you, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, James, three weeks in, when we mentioned earlier in the series that James is a little bit different than a lot of the New Testament books of the Bible or letters, epistles, if you want a fancy word for it, uh, tend to be. You've got things like Hebrews and Romans that many of you are much more familiar with, uh, that you have these uh, kind of theological expositions, if you will. I mean, they are profound, they are deep, they continue to uh, inspire our intellect and all of these different types of things. And then you've got the stories, right? The gospels, these different uh, narratives that are Jesus's life. And, and James is this kind of weird amalgamation of all of these different things of the New Testament and yet pulling from the rich tradition of the Hebrew scriptures and of the Old Testament. And it's this book of sort of proverbs, uh, if you will. It's, it's this culmination of little parts of Jesus's teachings and sayings. And you can go through pretty much all of the main sections of James as we walk through them and, and you can line it up almost perfectly with Matthew 5 or Luke 6, which is what we believe to be a, pretty much the same sermon from Jesus on the Mount or in Luke, they call it the Sermon on the Plain. 
And there's this direct connection that James is trying to do something. Then I read in one of the commentaries when we were starting to uh, look at James that they made this comparison that I think is really helpful for us in our generation. Uh, in our culture, we're, we're very familiar with Wikipedia. We know what it is, and we know uh, that it's something that's mostly trustworthy. Um, it gets altered every once in a while when people like to pull funnies. But, you know, for the most part, it's something that you can go to. Wikipedia is not a biography of someone's life. It is not a, uh, you know, grand narrative, nor is it an academic, uh, theological, or uh, historical expose on a topic that you might research or look at. But it is a collection of, uh, or a snapshot of someone's life a lot of times. It's a really great way. You think about an author, an athlete, a, a history of a school sports program, or whatever it might be. You can go and you can get a pretty decent amount of uh, information from who they are and get a good idea. And there's quotes and links and, and whatever you have. James, in a lot of ways, is operating in a similar fashion. It is like a, a wiki quotes, if you will, of Jesus's like kind of highlight sermons. And if you do the work or you pay attention to your Bible, you will see all of the hyperlinks and, and kind of the, the touch points and the quotes that he's pulling from that we can see throughout the Old and New Testament. And so there's in that then, sometimes if you go to somebody's wiki page, if you're familiar with this, I tend to wiki a lot of people. I, I'm a junkie for information and I have to know things, then I forget them. But what I need to know is like how somebody like came about their story, their history, the dates, whatever it might be. And you go and, and you read it and you get some basic information from it. And sometimes the person's page is like, you know, it's very different. It's more biographical. Sometimes it is more like kind of narrative. And as you're looking at it, what you see is that nobody does it the same way twice necessarily, but it, it, we understand what we're doing. It's like a form. James is doing this, okay? So he's pulling these quotes. He's taking us into the life of Jesus, but there's not a lot of structure to this. It's like rapid fire. You're just kind of jumping from one thing to the other. And we're wrapping up the only real kind of clear section of James, which is chapters 1 and 2. And now we're about to get to the point where it is just like drop down Roman numeral 1, drop down Roman numeral 2, like if you think of this on a computer or a website. And so it's going to be like, this is what we think about this topic, and then it's going to like tell us something. And so if you could sum up what the first couple of chapters and what the main theme of James is going to continue to be, right? The chapters 1 and 2, in a lot of ways, Douglas Moo is a New Testament commentator. And what he says is that the first two chapters of James really are about this idea of true, true religion. And when he says that, he means it in a good way and not just in the Fergie needing some genes kind of way. And then, or like in the way that we're like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Like we have a weird relationship with the word religion in the 21st century. But he means this in a good way. The, the true way of shaping and forming, because here's the reality, we're all religious. We all have a set of values and practices and principles. We all have a set of rituals and customs that we live our lives by, whether we acknowledge and name them as such is up to you. But what he's saying is true religion, religion and customs and rituals that shape and form your life around the truth, i.e. Jesus Christ, is this, that works would line up with what you proclaim to believe, and that would line up with what the word of God requires. And now all of the things that we're going to discuss from this point on in the book of James are going to be centered around that idea. They're going to be centered around this concept or this like, way in which our lives are meant to be formed and shaped around the word of God as such that what we believe and confess 
lines up with what we do and say. Like that it all is kind of this wholehearted, pure, single-minded way of living after the pursuit of who Jesus is. And James is going to be really bothered throughout the entire book by people that seem to be dual-minded or split on this. But there is a wholeness, a completeness that he is after that he believes that the life of a believer should be able to emulate or replicate. That there is a way in which what we say and what we do reflects what we believe and who Jesus is. And so as we move into this second section, uh, or this next section, if you will, there's a shift where he's going to start talking about the unity of the people that are saying they are following after Jesus. James, being very Hebrew and Jewish uh, in his roots and still in the way he functions and operates here in the first century, this understanding or this idea that what we're being called to is not just individual, but it is communal, is paramount to him. The Old Testament people would have never understood this idea of being called individually to follow God, like, and that that was kind of it. It was always the people. In the New Testament, writers are going to pick up on this theme, and then as we become more and more Western and more and more isolated in our lives, in our jobs, and the way we do things and operate and function in society becomes more and more individualized, we understand the call of the gospel more individually. And there is an individual component. James is not shying away from that. He's saying, absolutely, the way you individually function and operate matters to the heart of the gospel. But he's never losing sight that the way that it matters is still connected into the larger whole, that it is still the people that God has called and saved and elected. It is this group that he is saying will be mine. And if you claim to be a part of this people, if you have faith in this Jesus that is the head of this people, this body, then your lives should look a certain type of way. But a big focus for him and a big reason that he wants your lives to look a certain kind of way and function in a certain kind of way is because there is a call for this people to be a light and a beacon, to be a home for people in a space where turmoil and discord uh, it seems to continue to be what is most people's experience. That there's a peace and a joy that should be experienced in life. And this people's job is to invite those that are in need of that, a wanting and watching and waiting world into rest, into wholeness, and into stillness. And he thinks that the way you act has something to do with that. And so he's always focusing on this like communal group a collective aspect of this as we look at this. And, and so these next few chapters are going to deal a lot with what is happening in the New Testament church. Surprise, surprise, even in the New Testament church, there were problems immediately. I'm, Kyle and I have made this joke before, and we talk about it a lot uh, when we're like, discussing things in the office and around, just like random whatever. And you'll hear people say, like, oh, man, I wish we could just get back to the way the New Testament church was. And it's like, well, why? Well, because we have this kind of like rose-colored idea of that the New Testament church was just this pure, wholehearted, everything was great and fine. Immediately, there's discord. Immediately, there, there's strife. Immediately, there are people that are trying to figure out how this is going to work and operate and function. And that's the reality is, because as James says in this section that we just read, none of us are perfect. None of us have the ability to be free of sin or, or of mistakes. All of us are fallen, broken human beings. And yes, we find healing and wholeness in Christ, but this was the point of Esther and in many ways the point of James is that you too are broken. You too are, are fragmented. You too have woundings and hardships that define you and name you in ways that you wish they didn't because you've experienced evil and brokenness around you. 
And you too tend to strive after things and feel yourself incapable of being what you want to be, as Paul would say in Romans. Of, of trying to accomplish something that you know falls short and that you do the things that you don't want to do and you say the things that you don't want to say, even though you know better. He's saying, well, all of us experience this. All of us know this frailty and this futility well. It is to be human in many ways, to experience the brokenness of humanity, to, to experience this disconnect from what the Creator intended us to be, and to experience that disconnect in relationship, and, and to experience that disconnect in peace and in joy, and, and to operate and function outside of the bounds and outside of the lines in which you were best intended to operate and to function. And it causes havoc, and it wreaks death, and ultimately it causes decreation, right? A removal of what God intended to be. And so he knows that this is true of all of us. And so you experience this. And what he's saying is, is here then, now, you must live in such a way that you can experience this unity and this wholeness, not just within yourself, but within relationships around you. Because we are meant to be in relationship with one another, and in relationship with the creation. And there's this language here in James that we see that he starts talking about the animals and, and the seas and there's this taming and, and you should start to hear echoes even though it's not exact quotes of Genesis 1 and 2 saying that humanity was called to do these types of things and, and they're capable of doing it they're capable of living and functioning in this kind of way and yet everyone still fails along the way and so he's inviting us to come and to participate in this life and to see the world around us in a different kind of way, to understand that we need to pursue a unity and a wholeness with both within ourselves and God, our family, our relationships, and at large as the people of God. And so what's happening is that there's disagreements, there's strife, there, there's power struggles immediately, and people are trying to figure out what do we believe and how are we supposed to operate in light of who Jesus is. And, you know, 2,000 years later, here we are, multiple denominations churches all over the globe, and we have different op differing opinions and thoughts on how that happens. And so what he's saying in these next few chapters is like, you guys, you've got to be unified. And he's going to do so here specifically in three and pick up in chapter four, uh, talking about the, that unification, that peace, that way of living as the people of God comes by understanding that the words you use and say have power that they matter, and that the quickest way to bring disunity, to, to, to disintegrate what God intends for us to hold together as a people, is to use your words in ways in which harm and hurt. And he's going to talk about the juxtaposition of why that seems to be or should seem to be off to you if you are a follower of Jesus. There's like some way in which that doesn't seem congruent with what God has called us to. When you confess and praise God with your mouth and you curse humanity, which is made in his image, then that is something that does not bring wholeness. And so he's going to talk about these words. Now, in the very beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he addresses teachers. And what he's saying here is that many of you should not desire to be a teacher. This does not mean that James thinks that teaching and scripture and theology and leading in that kind of way is, uh, should be a very limited number of people. What it means is that those that desire to do so should take it very, very seriously. 
And there's a way in which that unity and that functioning and what it means to follow Jesus and, and to line up with the word of God and for our practices and our beliefs and our routines and our rituals to all kind of like be coherent. It means that it is not as simple as just kind of thinking you have it all right because as verse 2 tells us, guess what? You're just as broken as the people that you want to lead. Oftentimes, in my experience of my own reflection of my life and in my relationships with others around me, the uh, people that tend to be eager to lead and to say things, the people that are eager to make definitive statements and that tend to think that they are always right, most oftentimes are the people that are the most broken, frail, kind of hiding things. And there's a, an arrogance and a hubris that goes along with that certainty. Not always. There is things that we can believe in. Uh, we do believe in absolute truth, but most of the time, when we start to defend and we start to argue, and, and the people that think to themselves, man, I have something to offer to the world, especially at a very young age, especially when new to something or an idea, we realize that that person, I'm speaking of myself here in my own history, and now I can see it in others as I interact with them, but we understand that oftentimes that eagerness to be out in front is not had the time to go through what is a patient kind of suffering a long obedience, a forbearance that allows us to see the frailty and the brokenness of our own lives. And so he wants to say, if you are eager to teach, you should be, you know, maybe think about it for a moment. Because everybody is broken and you are going to stand up in front of a group of people and, and carry some sort of badge of honor and a sort of dignity, and there's going to be a way in which people look at you and kind of acknowledge like that you're offering something to them. And you're going to do so as a broken and frail human being. And so those broken things about you, those wounds, those scars, they're going to be put on display in ways that you don't necessarily want to experience. And so slow down. Don't, don't jump to it so quick. Now, the question is, is when James is addressing teachers in chapters 3, uh, verses 1 and 2... Is, is the rest of the section, uh, 3 all the way to the end of 4, just to teachers? Is 3, 1 through 12 only through teachers? The language changes. Surprise, I'm going to say, I don't know if it matters that much, slash it can be both and. And here's why I think this. Because James is not acknowledging or saying that teaching should be limited to a, a, like a certain number of people. He's saying those that want to teach should be slow to understand what is being asked of them. If you, and I think that is true, yes, I think we should be slow to kind of understand what it is that we are doing when we, we say we want to lead or, or be out in front of people. And yet what we know from the gospel and what we understand and see from the story of the New Testament church through things like Acts and other epistles is that those that are serving tables and that are called to mind the food, they spend their time there and they end up teaching. We know that our lives are meant to in some way always be reflecting the gospel and what we know is that we as the people in our lives become the biggest message of the body of Christ. We can say a lot of things in here that we want to say, but it's rarely going to affect those outside of the church. Most of the time, this is what's happening in this space is for us, those that follow Jesus, that, that are seeking after to have our lives shaped and formed, which is why we use language like recentering and restoring and retelling because we believe that that's the space in which we do that here so that we can go out there and proclaim a message of hope and of goodness and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think James would agree that though not everyone will carry the title of pastor, 
I do not think he would disagree with Peter when he says that the body of Christ is called to be a royal priesthood, meaning that all that would pursue Christ in some sense are called to ministry. That's why we commission people. We say accountants, teachers, scientists, construction workers, police officers, nurses, doctors, whatever it is, that you too are called to ministry in those spaces and you will lead and speak on behalf of the name of Jesus. And if you do so then you know that what he's saying about teachers remains true of all people in some sense. And so whether he's talking just to teachers or not, I think the message or the implication of the message applies to all believers at the end of the day anyways. And so he's going to say to them, be slow to be a teacher because what you say and what you do is going to matter and your failures and your weaknesses and your insecurities are going to be exposed and then also, it is worth acknowledging that those that have a position of, of influence, those that have platforms, that those that have people that listen to them, what you say also matters. It's why parenting is scary, because you're shaping and forming these tiny little humans into something. It's why being a teacher or a coach matters more than you can like, conceptually understand at times. Because if you think about your own life, what you say and what you do in those very small moments can have a world of impact that ripples for years, years, and years. Subtle sentences, moments, phrases that I can freeze in my life where someone said something kind or harmful to me had a dramatic impact to how I understand and see myself to this day when I attempt to do something, right? So anyone that leads, anyone that does something, you must understand that what you say matters, has input, influence. This is why, uh, just quick side note, small tangent here, it is really easy to be an armchair theologian. It is really easy to be an armchair quarterback. Because when you have the ability to make those decisions either A, you know, after the event, or B, where it doesn't really matter, where you can just kind of, I just feel this way, I just feel like this is the right thing to do in that moment, or the right thing to say, you don't have to care for everyone else in that moment. And he's saying, if you teach, and you make a statement on a theological or a political position, understand that what you're doing in that moment is you are guiding and shaping and influencing people in a different kind of way than those that aren't teaching. And this is why Kyle and I say this too all the time, that there are things in which we will preach on, there are things we will talk about in a Bible study, and then there are things that we will talk about like kind of one-on-one -on -one individually, like because there's steps to it. Because when you are in these moments, these teaching moments, you have to understand the weight of what you're saying carries differently. And the same goes for any leadership position that you would find yourself in. And so he's saying, be mindful. Because what happens with very small things like words and ideas has a dramatic effect. And so he's going to move on in the structure of this. You have to understand that this idea of teachers and imperfection and what is, that it's all being controlled by the tongue. And so then we're going to go into verses 3 through 6 where he rattles off a set of analogies for those that are English people. It's two metaphors and a simile. Uh, if you want to just, you know, go with it. Or no, sorry, I have that backwards. It is one, two similes and a metaphor because he says that it is like, and it is like, and then he says it is the same. So anyways, it's just for you people that are nerds. Uh, I like to be nerdy sometimes. So the similes are that he says the tongue is uh, like a ship, and the tongue is like a bridle. It is something that controls us. And then he's going to say, and metaphorically, the tongue is a fire that sets things ablaze. I think we get what he's getting at here. Small things can make a really big impact. Small things can have a huge control over the direction and, and what happens to something. And he's going to move on to the sort of double-mindedness of the tongue, if you will, verses 9 through 12. He's going to, to talk about how the works 
Throughout James is an important idea. These works are a reflection of your faith. And in this moment, he is going to say specifically the words are a reflection of your heart. The core, kind of the center of your being, your essence, who you are down here is reflected. And by the words you say, I, I'll never forget this because I thought it was really helpful. Because I think it's true in more ways than one. But I was in college and I remember there was this like really big like, if you've ever been up late and partaking in uh, activities that happen late at night uh, at a college campus, um, things can get out of control real quick and words can be exchanged uh, very fast. And oftentimes it happens between people that know one another over something really uh, insignificant. And this happened and a lot of things were said and a lot of people were really upset. And then the people that stick around as you do in these moments, you know, you unpack the situation unhelpfully because you all just affirm one another's beliefs because you're still there. So obviously you weren't the ones that were offended. Uh, and so you're like, yeah, that's right. But someone said in that moment, the words of a drunk person, my mom told me, are the heart of a sober person. Unless you think you get to escape that quippy little wisdom, uh, those of us in this room that love sarcasm, i.e. most people in the 21st century, I would say it would be good for you to stop and acknowledge when you use sarcasm to think to myself, are my sarcastic jokes and the words I'm saying in humor really just my heart and what I want to say out loud? Because I find most of the time when I'm dealing in relationships that that is usually true. I think it is the same. This shows the point that what we say and what we confess with our mouths oftentimes in these moments are a reality of what our heart actually is, right? And so we get this as he, as he processes this. He's saying that you cannot be two things at once. You are either one or the other. Two things that disagree with one another can't coexist in that kind of way within you when it comes to following after Jesus. And so he wants us as believers to be whole and complete in our theology and in our pursuit of Jesus and our discipleship and in our formation. And so he runs with those ideas all the way to the end of the section. And that theme, that wholeness, that uh, push against double-mindedness, like I said, all throughout James. So... What does that mean for us, though, right? This tongue, this idea that, that we can't be both things at once. Let's name something about the tongue before we move on too far. In James 2, uh, 16, Kyle preached on chapter 2 last week. But in James 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 16, James is going to say uh, what seems like almost contradictory to what he's saying now in chapter 3. And it's not that it's contradictory. Here's where James is wrong and two things can be true at the same time, which is a fundamental concept that we as human beings should allow some space for, that sometimes two opposing things can be true. Sometimes two opposing things can't coexist in, at the same time. And the difficult task of life is discovering which times are which. So anyways, what he is saying here in two verse six, verse, chapter 2 verse 16 is he's saying that there are these moments in which what you confess with your mouth seems really good. You might say you believe in Jesus. You might say that you want to pursue the life that Christ would have for you, that you want your life to be shaped and formed in line with the disciplines and the practices that the church and that the gospel calls us to. And yet, the actions of your life do not match up. Specifically, what he's going to say here is that if you pass someone in poverty that, that is destitute, that, does, that, that lacks and you simply speak blessing over them and say, I hope you have a really great day, and yet you do nothing about their plight in any way, shape, or form, 
then you in some sense are just saying really kind words, but your actions don't back any of it up. In which case, there is a split in what you believe and what you do. Now, words are not actions. Don't confuse James here. Uh, to, to jump to chapter 3 is not to then say all of a sudden that, well, what your words are are the same thing as like words. No, he's saying sometimes what you say won't line up with what you do, and that's bad. But here's this other thing what he's saying is, is don't, don't go too quickly thinking, oh, well, I'm good then because I, uh, you know, I tithe my 10%, I give to the poor and the needy, and I move on. Because he, what he's saying in the next chapter is sometimes... You can do certain things that make you look and seem really good, and yet what you say with your words brings cursing and strife and difficulty, and it tears people down. And I think you know this experience well. I have uh, relationships and I have experiences of my own life where it is very easy to go and do things at times and to feel really good about yourself and to think that you're promoting this idea of wholeness, peace, healing, and that you're actually wanting something good for the people around you, and yet then the way you talk about the people that are closest to you, or maybe that first, you know, kind of adjacent circle, the way you talk about your own life, the way you talk about the gospel, it, it's not full of joy. It's not full of blessing. And there's a way in which both can contradict each other. Your, your actions can contradict your words, and your words can contradict your actions. And I think we miss that a lot of times. We think, well, you know, as long as I'm doing the things, ticking the boxes, acting in the right way, but what about what goes on, not just behind closed doors, but even in, you know, good humor and fun? What happens when you're frustrated and you're angry and you're mad? Not when you're in control of yourself. You know, everybody can do the right thing when they're fully regulated. What comes out when you're unregulated? What comes out when nothing that day has gone the way you wanted it to? And our words can change sometimes from what our actions have been that day or that week. We experience this. We know this well. And so when he's talking about the tongue, what he's saying is that sometimes your actions can be rather empty because the way you use your words is frivolous and mindless and you just kind of throw them out there and you tear people down and it causes serious problems. We know the things of gossip and go down the line, right? But even beyond that, I think talking about teachers, in our 21st century, we live in a different environment where now all of a sudden everyone has the ability to have platform and influence. And everyone is in some sense expected to respond very quickly to things. And we think that we should, because we have a camera in front of us or a keyboard that allows us to send a message to the entire world, say something every time something bad happens or every time something that offends us happens or every time something you know, comes across my way that the world must know that this is injustice. You know, that, and I'm not just talking about the social injustice issues. I'm talking about you know, the bad service you get at a restaurant that you deem necessary to go and tear that poor person down on Google. Or an athlete that you don't ever stop and actually think about that that poor 18-year-old kid that was playing football yesterday may have just went through one of the most difficult situations and his prefrontal cortex is not fully developed and yet you as a grown man find it perfectly uh, suitable to say something really terrible about his character and his being on the internet. Why? Well, because you think you're right and your actions are really quite dramatic and harmful and hopefully he doesn't read it, you know, but I, if I were an 18-year-old kid famous enough to be on ESPN on a Saturday, I would probably go and read everything that my name was mentioned in, because I'm egotistical like that. But our words, they matter, 
and the way we use them. And so all of us now, in some sense, have this platform and this ability to rush out to say things. And we live in this like, kind of weird tension of society where we think that everybody needs to be an expert, and then as soon as any expert disagrees with me, I can be my own expert, and I have something to offer the world that that expert doesn't. And so I should tell everybody how to do medicine, and I should tell everybody how to do education, and I should tell everybody how to read theology, because I can be whatever I want to be. And our words, they begin to matter. And we create followings and cultures and echo chambers. And so this isn't just the thinkings of like, oh, I shouldn't say mean things about, you know, really nice people or even mean things about mean people. But it's a reality that as you follow Jesus, what you say and what you proclaim should begin to have an impact and it should change and it should be shaped and formed by the things that we know to be true about who Christ is. And so we know this. We know that the tongue, it is a mighty, mighty muscle. The terrible jingle that we know as children, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is just absolutely never been true. The most painful things that have ever happened to me in my life have been words. The things that still keep me awake at night have been words, or the lack thereof, right? When you needed the words and they didn't show up, it would be just as painful. The tongue has the power to heal it has the power to unite, and it also has the power to tear down and to cause great harm. And he wants us to powerfully understand this. Because here's the other thing about the tongue. If you follow chapter 2 and the idea of good works, and you do the good works that line up with your faith and who you believe Christ to be, if you do these things and you're shaped and formed by your faith in good ways and you go and do a whole lot of really good things, we know this even more now in the 21st century than ever. Your words have the ability to ruin all of that, to set ablaze to a forest of good works, just by the way you use words. It doesn't even have to be the way you use words publicly, but in meetings and in staff moments and in your family and with your friends, and the way you joke and the way you attempt to solve conflict and address problems and issues in your life. Your words matter. They can undo good works that come from a place of good meaning and, and hope and desire, right? And so then what he's going to say is that this is a problem because nobody can do it. We should leave you feeling somewhat hopeless. But if we can quote from Romans 9 and say, but thanks be to God. Because there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're supposed to be arriving at in James. See, I told you, James is full of a whole lot of really good theology. There's Christology and pneumatology, which is a fancy way of saying stuff about the Holy Spirit. And there's this way in which we are seeing that what James is getting at is, you are right, and he is right. This feels hopeless and messed up, and my words are always going to fail me. And yet, it is not hopeless. In the same way that we, humanity, are called to have dominion and exercise over the animals, and we can control a large beast that is much stronger and more powerful than we are, with something very small, the Holy Spirit has this ability to begin to invade into your life and to allow you to be guided and directed and controlled in a way that brings honor, that brings blessing, that brings joy, that brings wholeness to both your life and those around you and allows the kingdom to come as it is in heaven. This is what the, the gifts of the Spirit are, right? Fruit of the Spirit. I should say the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Talking about our fruit metaphor from James 3. We think about that, yes, 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 he ends with, you know, figs can't come on olive trees or whichever one it is. Figs and olives don't come from the same plant. 
Salt water doesn't come from a fresh water spring and fresh water can't come from salt water. The Holy Spirit begins to change you in such a way that you begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom. It should infect you. It's singular fruit, by the way. All of these things are the way that fruit of the Spirit is shown. And so instead of responding quickly and angrily, and instead of being harsh or passive, what we begin to see is that as the Holy Spirit takes control of you and uses your tongue, it should begin to use it for things like love, joy, kindness, peace, faithfulness, self-control. Oftentimes things that are opposite of when we say things that we don't want to say, right? That there are these moments that we lack goodness. We lack mercy. Dear God, be a parent for like a week and you will realize that this is so true. That, that you do not operate and function this way with your words too often. And yet the Holy Spirit gives space and opportunity for you to go and to use your words to restore and to rebuild. We say things that we don't mean in anger. When emotion takes over, chemically the brain does this thing, you know, flip our lid. We're operating in our lizard brain. You know, give our downstairs brain a hug. Let our prefrontal cortex come back online and say things like, I know you don't always do that. You know, I, I, I know you're, you're not trying to just like make me angry and we learn to be able to give people kindness and I think the Holy Spirit can do this. It can allow us to get to these spaces faster and we can go and we can apologize, we can mend and we know that where things are torn and mended that oftentimes they are stronger than they were before. This is how muscles work. It's how relationships can work. So we ask for forgiveness as the Spirit leads, guides, and equips and enables us to do so. And so we have to begin to lean into this, to trust that the Holy Spirit is active and present in our lives. And when we see that it is not, we ask for forgiveness because we agree with James that we are not perfect. And we begin to think the best about people. What a foreign concept in the 21st century. To assume that someone disagrees with you isn't just a racist or a fascist or a communist, or whatever slur we want to throw at people, but to begin to assume that maybe they have good intentions and hearts and desires, that when somebody offends you, that it had absolutely nothing to actually do with you, but it had something to do with how terrible the, their day has gone, it has something more to do with the fact that, that they're struggling on their end of things. Because I think this is what Jesus does, because Jesus looks at all of us, and when we fail, and when we fall short, he doesn't look at us and go, see, I knew that's exactly who you were. He looks at us and he says, no, 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 no. I know that's not who you are. I know that's not what you meant to do. I know you're trying. Let me come alongside you. Let me forgive you again. Let me forgive you again. Let me forgive you again. And he looks at us and he says, there's a faithfulness that I will deliver to you. And this is what he comes to do on the cross. He comes to be faithful to us when we continue to fail. And our task, as we live into the fruit of the Spirit is to let our words and our actions be as such that we reflect the fruit that we see on the cross, which is a life of sacrifice and of death. And this moment where Jesus, being there, could have said a whole lot of things about the people that were beneath him. But do you ever think about the words that he says to the people that nailed him to the cross? Okay, so the band's going to come up, and while they do, I'm going to tell this story. A couple weeks ago, me and Jameson are driving to soccer, I don't know, he, he thinks that, I guess maybe because I'm a preacher, he, he, he's supposed to be a preacher one day, and he, he has this idea that he's going to tell a sermon. He was asking me, we were going back and forth. Anyways, he says to me, 
If I ever preach a sermon, I'm going to use uh, The Wild Robot Protects, which is this book we just read. And I said, okay, why, why would you want to use that book? And he says, well, because we see in it that Roz sacrifices and, and does a lot of things. And, and through the whole book, Roz is going along and, he, and she is trying to save her island by putting herself in harm. And I was like, okay, we're going to jump on this. This is one of those moments. The wind was blowing, the Holy Spirit was present, and we're like, we're going to fly this kite. Okay, so I'm like, yeah, that's right, buddy. So we start talking about nonviolence and why we think that it's, we need to be kind to one another. And we get to Jesus on the cross, and I say, buddy, what do you think Jesus' response was? Like, if he's, if he's wanting to save the people that are around him, I'm like, why, why do you think that Jesus like, died on the cross? Well, to save our sins. I said, what about the people that nailed him there? He's like, well, I don't know. Like, maybe he's going like, to like beat him up or something when he gets down. I'm like, perfect six-year-old boy response, like, strongest man, like, this is Jesus of all people, crying out loud. I said, do you know what he said when he was looking at the soldiers? He said, no, what did he say? I said, Father, forgive them. Not because they're terrible people and they need forgiving. Not Father, forgive them because what they've done is wretched and awful. Not Father, forgive them because, you know, they're the reprobate. But Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I said, do you have any idea what that means? No, he didn't. You know. Then the conversation was over, and I kept trying to talk, and he was done. <laughs> but that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and action with our words. If those are the words he chose to speak were words of forgiveness, words of recognition that they don't know what they're doing. And his words are the same to you. When you fail, I get it. You don't understand it all yet, but I'm here, and I'm forgiving you, and I'm inviting you into more. And this is the way our lives are supposed to look. And these are the way our words are supposed to function and operate. And this is what we are called to do as believers, is to use our words in this kind of way to build and to forgive and to bring unity and to bring hope. And if you're a teacher or a leader of any kind, double on you and commiserate with me because it sucks sometimes. But this is what we're called to. This is why the church is exciting to me, because in that way that these words can steer so much, right? Teaching, leading, these words can, can have an impact on the direction the body goes and people's opinions of the body. But if that is true, and the negative of that, that he is warning against us, is true, then what excites me is that the inverse of that is true. That if we begin to operate like this as a society here collectively, this little enclave of people that belong to a future reality, that are residents of the way communities and societies are supposed to function where things are perfect and whole. If we reflect that here and now and begin to do that, then the inverse is true. What we say and what we do and how we welcome people in brings glory and honor. And for all the hardships and the pains and the difficulties that the church has caused, and all the ways that our society is angry and quick to just assume the worst about everyone else, if we as a people begin to practice the opposite, what a gift to a wanting and waiting world that we're supposed to be as the people of God. What a joy it is to call Jesus our Lord and Savior. What a joy it is to be a part of a community that gets to do that kind of stuff. That's an exciting reason to be a believer if you ask me. It's the type of thing I want to be a part of. But the fruit is going to look like the cross. 
doesn't come easy and it doesn't come free. But as we do so, and this is what we celebrate at the table, this is what we come to partake in, it is to, to be shaped and formed into that. So as the band plays, I'm going to invite you to come up, take a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to the elements, as is our uh, normal way of doing things. And hold that and imagine what it looks like, that that is the fruit of Christ's cross that was put on display, that enables this Holy Spirit to come and to be a part of our lives, that allow us to begin to be shaped and formed into that. And as we take that bread and that cup and we receive of the gifts and of the forgiveness of sins, that it does something to us, that it shapes and forms us, and in the way only the economy of the gospel or the physics of the kingdom can operate and function, it's bread and juice, but it does something and it actually allows you to become more Christ-like. It changes something in you, and he becomes present to you in a very real way in you and in this space here this morning. Believe that Christ is here as we come to the table, and that as you encounter Christ, that your life is shaped more like his. So come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.